0: What we want to do is, again, if you can open your Bibles to Genesis 37, and we're going to be looking and examining some scriptures uh, from Genesis 37 on to um, chapter uh, 50, Uh, and and we're definitely going to be looking at, um, of course, a a central character to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at um, the life of Joseph uh, in, in regards to this idea of biblical success. Um, as a way of introduction, I think we all have an understanding or we all uh, love the idea of success. I think all of us want success in our lives. We strive for uh, success. Uh, you think about um, you know, being able to be successful, um you think about, you know, climbers or people who go through great heights to be successful. You think of people uh maybe that are climbing Mount Everest and you would probably say, yeah, that's a pretty successful individual because most people can't uh do that. Um probably the other thing when you think about success, you probably also think about careers, right? And we may say that this guy, he's a doctor, you know, he must be very successful. He went through a lot of years in school uh, to be successful, but you may not think this guy is as successful the janitor may not be as successful as the doctor. Uh, Or maybe you think the lawyer, right? This lawyer is very successful, Um, again, going to a lot of years of school and uh, being able to go through their cases and win cases, win arguments and all of that. And you probably think, yeah, that's a successful person. But somebody maybe working in a restaurant or waitress or a waiter, uh, maybe not as successful, right? So what's the point? We judge What we deem successful, right? We make the judgment calls of what we deem successful, right? You may look at this place or this house and think, not so successful, but when you look at this house, this big house, mansion with a nice car, oh yeah, those people must be successful. Uh, However, though, biblical success is different from our idea of success. Now, you may have looked at those pictures and thought um, the fact that somebody can own a home is successful, right? The fact that somebody can have a job is successful, right? Um, But we have a different idea of success than what the Bible defines success. And I think there's a reason for that. Um, We listen often to a lot of these gurus and people uh, who talk to us about what successful people look like. And we start to think that that's what takes or whatever that person says is what it takes to be successful. And oftentimes we view success from a worldly standpoint versus what the Bible teaches success is. And that's really what I want us to talk about. I want us to talk about what true biblical success looks like. What true biblical success looks like. So I think that all of us would love to see our friends and our family um, obey the gospel. I, I think all of us would want to see that. And I would think that we would all think that's pretty successful, right? Somebody who's obeying the gospel is you know that's that's a successful moment, right? And and that's probably the uh one of the best moments of success for anybody, not not necessarily for the one doing the baptism, uh, but for the one being baptized. That's that's a successful moment, right? But I think sometimes, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, because I, I do think this is a successful thing and this is a wonderful thing, but if our thought process when it comes to biblical success is how many people I get in the water, then I think we again miss the point of what biblical success is. Again, I'll repeat myself. If we think that success comes from or our success comes from how many people are we can convince to get into the water, I think we've missed the point of biblical success. And again, it's not to dismiss the fact that yes, this is probably one of the most successful moments for any person to be baptized. And again, not success—not the success doesn't go to the one who has taught the gospel. The credit goes to God, right? It should always go to God, and we'll view that in a moment. But I just want you to think about think about that. even, even when we think about biblical things and we think about spiritual things, sometimes we may get the wrong idea again, that this idea of, well, how many people am I baptizing, that that deems my success rate. Well, no, that doesn't deem your success rate. It's a wonderful thing when people are baptized. It's a wonderful thing to teach people the gospel and to see them be baptized and to see them living a life uh, of um, of righteousness before God. But biblical success is not about how many people I can get in the water. So let's focus in on that. So somehow we may even have redefined what we think biblical success is. So I want us to talk about the idea of success in using the life of Joseph um, in the uh, in the Old Testament, using the life of Joseph to demonstrate or to show really what biblical success is all about, and of course if you've studied the life of joseph then you know the wild ride that joseph rides in his life um and so the first part of his life is pretty rough and then the latter part of his life seems to be grand and and so i want to sort of survey joseph's life and and really think about okay what truly is biblical success is it the fame the fortune Is it how many people, you know, again, I can baptize? What is truly biblical success? Uh, So that's what we want to talk about today. So let's get into this, the life of Joseph, uh, starting in Genesis 37. So uh, we see, starting in Genesis 37, we see um, that Jacob, uh, who is now referred to as Israel, uh, Jacob being a prominent patriarchal character in the book of genesis he's come from the line of abraham uh god has made a promise to abraham that his descendants would be many and that eventually they would bring in the messiah um, especially we know that examining throughout the old testament and of course into the new um, looking at the line of of jesus Um, But so Joseph is part of this line, or excuse me, Jacob is part of this line, or Israel, his name has been changed by God. Um, So throughout this discussion, his name's going to go from Jacob to Israel, but it's referring to the same person. So Jacob and Israel are the same individual. Um, And we're introduced to one of his sons, who happens to be the youngest son, or, or excuse me, one of the youngest sons. His name is Joseph. Uh, Joseph is introduced here, and in verse number two, um, we see that Joseph is 17 years old. So keep in mind this, and just to give an appreciation to what's happening here, um, Joseph is 17 years old. During this time, of course, they're under the patriarchal system, and and by the way, um the patriarchal system or traditions if you would continued even into um the um law of moses um again not the not necessarily that they were under two different laws but that the patriarchal makeup or the patriarchal traditions of of uh, the oldest man being the head of the household and that there were multi generations living in one household that was tradition Under not just uh, under this time during the patriarchal law and even into um, the law of Moses, so you had multiple generations living in one uh, household, and so Jacob or Israel would have been the head of that household, and so Joseph is being brought on the scene here, and he's again 17 years old in uh, Jewish tradition, um, and even from what we can see in scripture. Um, a man was deemed to be a man at 20 okay so he's considered still a boy and if you want context to that, you can look at Leviticus 27 uh, numbers 14 29 and Exodus 30 and verse 14 to get some context to what what um, even God told them um, what um, would have been counted as a man um, in in uh, during their time and it was probably very similar uh, even during uh, the patriarchal system. So Joseph is a boy and, and notice this, um, in, in verse number, uh, two, uh, it says here that he was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpha, his father's wives. So he was a boy among men. So he had a lot of older brothers. Okay. Um, He's probably the youngest, he is the youngest at this point, um, but he has a bunch of older brothers, so he, and he's probably significantly younger than his older brothers, okay? So he's a boy among men. I don't know if you have a kid brother or no, probably can experience this, but you think about your kid brother or kid sister and they're probably an annoyance to you a lot of the time, right? Because they're significantly younger than you. uh, And, you know, they're always asking you questions, always trying to follow you around, right? So there's just a natural um, wanting to be separated from your kid, sister, or brother. Just a natural feeling because of the age gap. But notice this, at the end of verse number 2, and Joseph brought a bad report of them, talking about his brothers, to their father. So Joseph was a snitch. I mean, <laughs> for all cases and purposes, he uh, had no problem going to his fathers and telling them what his brothers were up to, right? Whether uh, whether good or bad, right? So Joseph was that kind of person. Uh, we're not told too much about joseph's character but from just reading chapter 37 we kind of get the idea that he's probably just a normal teenager uh that had some rough edges with his brothers right uh and so he would be one who had no problem reporting bad information about his brothers to their father so verse number three and four now israel loved joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So he does not have a very good relationship with his brothers. Uh, His brothers are so jealous of him and hate him so much. Um, Now, of course, this is a lesson to us parents. We shouldn't uh, definitely have, um, you know, have favoritism towards our children. But sometimes in reality, sometimes this happens. Uh, And guess what? When you favor a child or show favoritism toward a child, even if you feel like you love all your kids equally, um, your other children will know, right? They will see it. They will be aware that you show more favoritism toward this child versus them. And they were completely aware. And I would imagine Joseph himself was completely aware because he demonstrated it by giving Joseph this cloak or robe, or some versions may say tunic, of many colors. Uh, Now, this would have been a tunic that you wouldn't necessarily wear Working. This was a long robe, right, of royalty and again of privilege. So he had special treatment um, from Joseph, or from uh, um, Jacob, from Israel. So it was very displayed that Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, and the brothers hated him hated him so much that they could not even speak peacefully to him. There was no good conversation that they could possibly have with Joseph. Everything was probably an argument. Everything was how I hate Joseph so much. And Joseph, um, I'm sure they communicated very well to Joseph how much they despised him. So that's the relationship that we see here. Now, if you read verses 5 and on, 5 through 11, you read about Joseph has these dreams. And so we learn something about Joseph and the fact that he has these dreams that God gives him and uh, Joseph is able to interpret these dreams. And so he has these two dreams, one uh, and both of them basically where... um where basically Joseph was telling them about what's going to happen or what the future holds and and basically the the visions or the dreams were this that one day they are all going to bow down to Joseph they are going to submit to Joseph so the first dream he tells the brothers then the brothers hate him even more and then the second dream he tells Um, not only his brothers, but also his father. And um, his father's like, what are these things that you're speaking of? And his brothers, again, hate him even more. So there's this toxic relationship that's being built between Joseph and his brothers and really his family. Um, And so you read on uh, in verses 12 uh, through the end of the chapter, you read on and you note that uh, the brothers, they go and they're doing their work. They're doing their job. And Joseph, of course, wants to join them. Don't know why, but he decides to join them. He goes and journeys um, to where they are. And as they're, as he's coming, um, in verse 18, they're plotting to kill Joseph. They want him dead, right? This guy thinks he's this big shot. This guy has so much privilege, um, this guy has no problem telling dad about the bad things we do. You know, I we can't stand this guy so much so let's just kill him. Let's just get rid of him, right? So that's the relationship. Um, And they hate his dreams, obviously, because uh, he's showing authority towards them. And so, but in verse 21, we see that Reuben, the older brother, butts in and says no 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 we can't kill him okay uh, that would devastate dad we can't kill him Um, so let's just teach him a lesson okay Um, we can put him uh in a pit or do whatever but we cannot lay a hand upon him like that we cannot kill him okay so verse 23 when joseph comes to them they strip him of his rope takes his robe off, and then they throw him into this ditch, verse 24. Um, and this this, um, this this pit is empty and has no water. So most likely this was probably some type of well pit, probably. Most likely that's my own interpretation of this. But anyway, so they throw him in this pit where he can't get out of, okay? Um, and they leave him there. And so while this is happening... They're sitting down, the brothers, and they're sitting down, they're eating, and they notice this group of travelers, and they happen to be uh, Ishmaelites. Now, that's very interesting, right, because of who their descendants are and, and that Abraham had a son named Ishmael. So these would have been distant relatives, right? And so they see these Ishmaelites, and they're traveling to Egypt. And so Judah has, uh, Judah, which is very interesting because where does Jesus' line come from? It comes from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Judah has the brilliant idea, with Reuben not present, let's sell him, right? We, we can't benefit from killing him. So they still have the idea of killing Joseph. But they're like, well, we can't benefit from that. So let's just go ahead and sell Joseph. And so they do that. They sell Joseph to these Ishmaelites. And and then Reuben returns, verse 29, and Reuben notices, okay, Joseph is missing. He rips his clothes. He's uh, saddened by this. He's mourning with this because we're going to be in big trouble. So he approaches his brothers and tells them what has happened. Where did he go? And so they devise a plan. The brothers do, and they get the robe. They drench it in blood, and then they present it to their father and say, Do you recognize this cloak? And of course Jacob recognizes it immediately and Jacob believes that these animals have devoured his son. And so he is so distraught. The the verses say he's so distraught that nobody can comfort him. He's so distraught to the point that he has to leave them and go and mourn somewhere else. So you can only imagine what Jacob felt like, especially because this was his favorite son and everyone Knew it. Meanwhile, verse thirty-six. In the midst of this, the Midianites or these Ishmaelites they sell um, they sell Joseph to an Egyptian officer, a captain of the guard named Potiphar. So that ends chapter thirty-seven. We skip over to chapter thirty-nine, and we continue to see Joseph. Now he's interacting with these Egyptians. He's interacting with Potiphar. Now here's the awesome thing that we start to read, starting at verse number two, about Joseph and his connection to God and the fact that Potiphar can see this happening. So again, thinking about our our understanding of biblical success, of course, I'm doing a lot of background information Um, based upon the storyline, so we're all on the same page. But notice this, verse number two, the Lord was with Joseph. Sorry, I I, I had a bunch of slides and I, I skipped ahead and stuff, but here we go. Genesis 39, verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now think about this how would you and i define biblical success how would you and i define success at all well according to this joseph was successful because the lord was with him joseph was successful because the lord was with him and because of this the egyptian potiphar even notices this so he's successful Even as a slave. Now, a lot of us would, again, if we're thinking about, especially in terms of uh, education, in terms of position, we would probably look at Joseph from a worldly standpoint and think, that's not successful. How can you be a successful slave? But Joseph was. He was a successful slave, not because of his abilities, but because of God. So Joseph was successful because the Lord was with him. Verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Potiphar sees that God is giving Joseph success in everything that he does. Verse four, so Joseph found favor in his sight, being Potiphar's, and attended to him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had from the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had. The Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in in house and field. So he left in all that he had in Joseph's charge and left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So, so God is bringing so much success to Joseph that Potiphar sees it and Potiphar then puts him or gives him more responsibility around his house, full responsibility if you would, and the Lord then blesses Potiphar's household because of Joseph. So, Potiphar wasn't wasn't blessed because of Potiphar, and Joseph wasn't being blessed because of Joseph. Joseph and Potiphar were being blessed because of who? God. And it's a trickle effect, right? So Joseph was successful even as a slave, and because of that success, more responsibility was given to him in order to glorify God. I think we're starting to get the idea of what biblical success is just from this part of the story alone. But let's continue on as we're, again, examining the life of Joseph. Verse, um, now, of course, if you know the rest of the story from Genesis 39, you know that Potiphar's wife was in the mist and had uh and definitely had the goo goo eyes on joseph so starting at verse number seven or really at the end of verse number six now joseph was a hand was handsome in form in appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on joseph and said lie with me But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. Verse 9, he is greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Uh, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God and as she spoke to Joseph day after day he would not listen to her to lie beside her to be with her so Joseph is being bombarded by Potiphar's wife to sleep with them to have relations with him and he knows good and well he cannot do that that is Potiphar's wife and that goes against God's commands right even Joseph understands this okay and so joseph even says how can i do this not to you potiphar wife but to god do this great wickedness against god so he understands how sinful this action would have been and day after day even after he tells her that she continues to harass him every single day finally one day, according to starting at verse 11, one day, you know what? She's had enough. And so she physically grabs his garment. And you know what Joseph does, which we all should do in that kind of situation? He ran. He ran out of his garment, probably out of his sandals, and he just took off, right? Because he knew what this woman, this woman was relentless and she would not give up. And so he had to flee the situation well of course potiphar's wife takes this to her advantage and she gets joseph not only fired but in prison she tells the the people of the household that joseph was trying to make a pass at her she eventually tells her husband potiphar that joseph did this and potiphar is so enraged uh that uh thank god he didn't kill him right i believe god's protection was upon him but he was so enraged that he sends Joseph to prison and so that's where we find him at the end of chapter 39 or and but before you get to the end think about this verse uh number 22 or excuse me verse number 9 19 after he after the wife communicates to um Uh, to Potiphar Um, verse number uh, 20 and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined and he was there in prison verse 21 but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison so here is Joseph again well, we would say down on his luck uh, that he's at the low of the low. He goes from slave now to a prisoner, and put in a pit again uh, in the um, uh, in the um, jailhouse uh, the, or the jailer's house, uh, and he's put with other prisoners. So he's down to his luck once again. However, the Lord gives him favor the lord gives him success and it are and it gave him favor even in the sight of the keeper of the prison notice what the keeper of the prison does verse 22 and the keeper of the prison put joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So are you getting this pattern here? The Lord was with Joseph, even when we would think that he's not successful because he's a prisoner now. He was once a slave, now he's a prisoner. So the Lord has granted him success even as a prisoner And the keeper sees this, and he gives him favor, gives him oversight, even in prison. So you start to get this idea again of biblical success. So I'm going to, in slideshow for just a moment, are there any um, questions or comments um, before we move on here? Any questions or comments? Brandon. Yes. This is Tammy. Hi, Tammy. Um, do we know about how old Joseph was um, when he um, became a slave in Egypt? He was probably, I would say, he he was probably somewhere in his twenties. I don't think that we're looking at so much time going by. I think we're looking at about a decade from the time that he's in prison to the time he becomes. Uh, Pharaoh's second-hand man or right-hand man. So about ten years. Or yeah, somewhere probably around ten years or so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yep. Good question, though. Any other questions or or thoughts? Are you starting to see again that through this story we're defining what biblical success is? We're really defining it here. Alrighty, let's continue. Oh man, I just saw the time. I only have about ten minutes, so I'm gonna have to sort of skim through this a little bit. All right. So, um, and I apologize. I spent a lot of time probably on the back story or the 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 front story uh, of this. So I again I apologize, but nonetheless we'll we'll try to um, finish up here. All right. So you get to chapter forty. And while he's in prison, there's this cupbearer and this uh, baker, and they both uh, were um, the cupbearer and the baker to the king, uh, to Pharaoh. And they both do something offensive to Pharaoh. So they're cast in prison with Joseph. And um, they both have a dream. They both have a dream. And so um, Joseph Again, being the man that he is, he interpreted a dream when he was 17 years old, so he knows how to do so because God tells him what the interpretations are. And by the way, both in chapter 40 and also in chapter 41, when he um, interprets Pharaoh's dream, he always gives the credit to God that God's the one that tells your interpretation of your dream. He just uses me as a vessel. So Joseph understands this. And so um, so Joseph interprets these dreams for the baker and uh, the cupbearer. Um, the cupbearer, of course, his dream is depicting that three days he would be restored back to his office. Um, Joseph tells the cupbearer, because I did this, you know, please make sure that you don't forget about me when you go to Pharaoh. And so the cupbearer says, oh yeah, I'll, I'll make sure, uh, to tell, uh, to tell Pharaoh about you. But when you go to the beginning or to the end of chapter 39 in the beginning of, cha- or excuse me, the end of chapter 40 and the beginning of chapter 41, you realize that, um, he forgets. And it wasn't until two years later that the uh, cupbearer remembers. So there's some some time lapsing there. Um, the baker's dream was interpreted. Three days he would be hung and left for the birds to eat. Um, so Joseph interprets both of these dreams. And then in chapter 41, about two years goes by, and Joseph, and, excuse me, and um, the cupbearer um, is before the king. Um, and, um, remember the king has, or Pharaoh has these two dreams, uh, and, uh, in both of these dreams, you have an element of seven, um, in this, um, in, in the first part, you have an element of seven representing seven, uh, days of plenty. And then you have another element of seven, uh, things or, or, or individuals. And then, That interprets seven days of uh, destruction or famine. Okay, Um, so you have the seven cows at the beginning, um, seven cows of plenty, they're fat, they're great, and then you have the seven cows that are skinny and dying and they uh, consume the seven cows that are fat and plenty, and then you have the uh, corn. Um, seven, uh, you have the corn that's good, um, to eat and it's plump and it's good. And then you have the other corn that's not good to eat and they consume the corn that's good to eat. Uh, so, uh, of course, Pharaoh doesn't understand what this dream means. So he goes to all of his wise men, all those who claim that they can interpret these dreams and none of them can do it. And so that's when the cupbearer says, aha, I remember. There's somebody that I met in prison. His name's Joseph, and he can interpret your visions. Oh, and by the way, he's a Hebrew, right? So Pharaoh calls for him out of prison to come and interpret his dreams. And Joseph basically says, again, this is God interpreting your dreams, not me, but your dreams basically mean that there will be seven days of plenty, or excuse me, seven years of plenty, and then there will be seven years of famine. And, and get this, when you get... um." In verses uh, 29 and following, not only does he interpret the dream, but he also gives Pharaoh what his plan should be, his plan of attack. You need to hire somebody to look out for and, and execute this plan. You need to uh, gather as much as you can for the first seven years. And then during the uh, last seven years, you need to distribute them properly towards the land, right? So he lays out the plan, again, because God gave it to him, lays out the plan and tells Pharaoh, this is what you need to do. Pharaoh sees this and Pharaoh then says, I'm going to make you the plan maker, right? Or the plan executor. So, so, get this. So, Joseph goes from sl- or hated individual to slave to a prisoner. Now, he is, rises to a high power. So, notice what he rises to. He was placed over all of Egypt. He's placed over all of Egypt. He is only one step below Pharaoh, who's still ruler of the land. So he's the second in command. He receives Pharaoh's signet ring. Uh, Obviously, Pharaoh wouldn't have so many signet rings to go around. He would have only a few. And that ring would have meant that he, that Joseph, um, is the prime minister of Egypt. So he's, again, second in command. He received expensive royal clothing and jewelry. Okay. Um, He um, rode in chariot number two, right? So you got Air Force One. He rode in Air Force Two, right? So that's what Joseph had. He he rode in the second chariot, showing his uh, ruling. He received an Egyptian name. Now, what's interesting about this name, usually when. Um, a when um, a Hebrew uh, throughout the Bible would get a new name um, from a, a conquering country um, or a foreign country um, they would get a name that would have honored the foreign gods that they were now living in but here we get an indication that that's not the case with this Egyptian name. Um, this name probably would have most likely gave praise to Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, the God that we serve. So it would have given praise to him. And the most interpreters think, or, or most experts think that the name that he's given means God speaks and he lives. So that's the idea of the name that is given to um, Joseph. So most likely praising even the, the God Jehovah, okay? Or the one and true God even if they don't necessarily look to him as the one and true God, all right? So he gets a special Egyptian name. He received the daughter of the Egyptian priest as his wife, okay? So he gets uh, a a a, 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 or, uh, me, a a wife out of this deal from royalty, okay? So Joseph rises to power. Now most of us would say, okay, now he's successful, But again, as we look through the the account and we look through the story, he has always been successful. Why? Because God was with him. We may define or the world may define that um, in order to be successful, you have to attain wealth, you have to attain position and all these honors. But that's not biblical uh, success. Biblical success, I think Joshua says it best. but these are the words from God to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. So followers of God will always have what? good success not because of who i am but because of who god is so god is the one that provides success and its success biblical success is living for god that's the point biblical success is living for god if we live for god it doesn't matter what we go through It doesn't matter if we're a slave or if we're the right hand to the king or if we uh, own a bunch of things or we don't own a bunch of things, whether we have education or don't have education, the best job, the worst job, it doesn't matter. We are successful because we serve God. That is biblical success. And that may be a long way of looking at it, but just looking at this story of Joseph, we truly understand what biblical success is. For the sake of time, I'm just going to say this. Spiritual success isn't measured on how little you sin. It's measured by your willingness to never give up on being godly. Biblical success isn't measured by your position, wealth, or honor. It is measured by your commitment to God. Um, if you are God's, he will correct the sinful designs of men. Now, again, it may not happen in our lifetime like it did for Joseph, but eventually God is going to set things right, um, especially at the judgment. So we should not be so concerned about God fixing everything now. Eventually, again, when God's judgment day comes, everything will be put in its right place. So like his great grandfather Abraham Joseph, uh, excuse me, like his great grandfather Abraham Joseph had faith that God is able. If you look at, um, and I'll just end it this way: if you look at Genesis fifty, at the end of this, uh, at, at the end of this, in verse starting at verse number fifteen, Joseph's brothers are, of course, uh, uh, Jacob has died. Joseph's brothers are fearful that once Jacob dies, that Joseph is going to basically wreak havoc on them for all the stuff they did to him. Um, But I love this. Um, So they ask for forgiveness towards Joseph, verse 17. But notice Joseph's answer here in verse number 18. Uh, His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for for am I in the place of God. So I'm not going to make this judgment call upon you. That's God's place. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide you with your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So I love that. God may have you may have meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Good will always come about, not necessarily because of the events that take place, but because I belong to God. He will always make. He will always make things right. Maybe not in our lifetime, but on the judgment day we can be rest we can rest assured that it will and there are events throughout our lives where things are set right and all we can do is give the glory to God but we are successful regardless of what happens in our lives as long as we stay connected